Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. There's so much we don't know about autism. Subsequently, we're extremely thankful that there are organizations out in the world conducting research to help both professionals and families better understand the diagnosis. Today, we're excited to speak with Scientific Director for SPARK for Autism, Dr. Pamela Feliciano, about SPARK's important work as the largest genetic study of autism ever. In order to find answers for families and individuals on the spectrum, they need to understand what makes each of these children, adults, unique, and what connects all of these genetic components. SPARK does this through studying genetic, behavioral, and medical information. As an autism parent herself, Pamela is personally connected to this passion and leading this project, and we're so excited to learn more. Pamela, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me today, Jeff. So, Pamela, I love to be able to get into a little bit about what drives people into the fields that, especially as it relates to autism, is that it's such a passion-driven field. Some of the most influential people are people that have been touched by autism in some way. Do you mind giving us a little bit of a background about both your personal and your professional experience and how those interweave? Sure, sure. So um, in July of 2007, I was a postdoctoral fellow at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center um, doing a fellowship working on pretty basic aspects of developmental biology. Um, and my son, who was two and a half at that time, um, was diagnosed with autism. And you know, on that day, I when the doctor told me, I think that your son has autism spectrum disorder, it came as quite a shock. Um, he was my first child. Um, I, you know, despite having a PhD from Stanford and and knowing a lot about genetics, I didn't know much about child development or autism at all. And um, in retrospect, I think I it's clear about the signs that he showed um, and uh, that I think a professional would have saw earlier, but I didn't. And so really that was the thing that that dropped me into this journey. Um, he needed a lot of support at that time. Um, we had to set up a therapy program. Um, and this was a time when things like ABA weren't covered by insurance. Um, so it was probably about a year and a half. Um, so when he turned four, he was finally in a program that was supported um, by the district that we were living in. And he was in a full-time ABA program. Um, and he was also getting ABA at home. Um, and I learned so much about ABA in that first year um, with therapists coming in and out of the house 40 hours a week uh, before he was in the program. And, um, you know, subsequently for the past decade um, and, and more, um, I've been an ABA mom. And, um, you know, every single day almost, except Sundays, we have an ABA therapist come into the house. And um, it's been quite a journey. I, where's that intersection then? Is that so? I mean, it sounds like the treatment part has played such a big pack, part of your life. Your background in genetics, 
Was it just a, a kind of an inquisitive sort of path of saying, hey, you know what? I want to explore this deeper. I really want to understand yeah, how we went. I mean, from- I think that I, so at the time I was just starting my scientific career. Um, I, when he was diagnosed, I, I left um, briefly, like I took a leave of absence just because I needed so much. He needed so much from me. Um, but when I came back after he started the program when he was four, um, I I knew I wanted to stay in science, but I didn't know what I could do. Um, and I was really only trained to to um, be in basic developmental biology research at the time. Um, so I took a job at a publishing company called Nature Publishing Group. Um, they publish premier scientific journals. And so I was an editor at Nature Genetics. And um, in that way, I spent five years there and I really was able to learn a lot about the genomics of everything. So we cover um, publish very broad articles on and any topic in genetics. And so I spent a lot of time learning about human genomics and cancer and, and all kinds of neurological um, conditions. And um, I knew that there was an organization called Safari, the Simons Foundation Autism Research Initiative in New York City, because that's where nature was also. And also people from nature had gone on to Safari. Um, and I contacted them and, you know, started talking to them and eventually I was able to get a position there, um, working with, um, Dr. Wendy Chung, who is the PI of Spark. At that time, Spark wasn't a thing yet. Um, it was just an idea. Um, we knew from previous work that Safari had led that sequencing of thousands of families and autism would be a fruitful endeavor. Um, but the technology and the funding really wasn't there to push it forward. Um, but, you know, as the technologies got better and um, things progressed, and we, we learned that sequencing was really a great way to, to get into the genetics of autism. And so that's where Spark came in. And so in 2015, 2014, that's when the idea first came about. And um, I worked hard with Wendy and a team of people to launch it. And um, here we are now. So we're like six years into it and um, sequencing 100,000 people, which really just blows my mind if I think about it. And I think about how far we've come since my own son was diagnosed and how much we've learned um, in the past decade. It's really pretty remarkable. And we're continuing to learn so much more. So I think it's uh, yeah. it blows my mind at times just thinking about where we've come and and of course information yeah. is power but yeah. I mean we went from thinking that autism was caused in the 1940s by bad parenting yes. all the way through getting to a, a real classification system which is still evolving yeah. on those behavioral characteristics and now we're we're starting to get a little bit more knowledge from from genetics and yeah. Yeah. where is that going to take us like what is the value of understanding the genetics. Where does that tie in when you're when you're yeah. talking to families and understanding what Spark is going to be able to contribute? Yeah. yeah, it's a hard thing to do because you have to walk a fine line between overpromising and underdelivering. Um, I don't want to do either of those things, um, but I think that it is important to see what could happen. I'm not saying this is definitely going to happen, but I think one thing that may happen in the future is that there will be pharma 
pharmaceutical treatments for the core symptoms of autism based on our genetic understanding of what causes autism, you know, the totality of autism. Um, and I think that those treatments could help people with autism who need it. Um, people who, who have severe communication problems, like my son, um, he has, he had, he is verbal, but he is far from age appropriate on, on any language or communication scale. And he could really use some support um, in com his communication skills. And I do think that there will be treatments in the future for these core symptoms. Um, and, I, you know, other core symptoms that include um, like repetitive and restrictive behaviors. You know, I think these, this is obviously a spectrum, but um, I do think that eventually there will be pharmaceutical treatments for the core symptoms of autism based on what we know about the biology of autism. Um, I don't know when, I don't know exactly how, but um, I do think that these are, these are possibilities. And to have those tools, uh, you know, in conjunction with a very effective behavioral program could lead to much better outcomes and help people with autism reach their potential. You know, we don't want to change people with autism. We don't want to cure autism. I think that my son's autism is like he's a delight. Like everyone loves my son. Um, his teachers love him. They find him very endearing because of all of his quirks and traits and his autism and himself. And, you know, we wouldn't change that. But could he use some support? You know, definitely. And yeah. um, I think of those things as the ultimate goals out of what we can learn and what what knowledge of biology can give us um, in the future. Yeah, and I think that's such a wonderful goal to have. It's it's not changing somebody, but it's better understanding. And I think there's precedent out there in the genetic world with med management oh, on you know, how it interacts. And there's got to be that same component because a lot of children with autism have different uh, digestive issues have different, like you said, uh, stereotypical behaviors mm -hmm. or just being able to um, manage anxiety or depression. Right. And some of these, it's nice to know your genetic makeup to know which medicines are best going to affect your treatment. And is, is that some of the precedent that you all have seen across other fields? It, it can't be new to autism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of precedent for other fields, we draw for a lot from the precision medicine field um, in cancer. I think there are some really strong precedents for people with specific cancer mutations in in certain genes, where you know that tells doctors what drugs and what what um, what are going to be effective to to target those cancers. And I think that there will be treatments like that for specific genetic types of autism first. And there are some ongoing clinical trials, particularly in Angelman's and Fragile X that are going on right now that are showing some promise. Um, and I think that we'll learn a lot from those. Um, and I think those those types of precedents are, are ones that we're looking to. But, you know, I think there are also precedents in things like ADHD, where there isn't really a rush biological, not, all right, I won't want to say, there is a biological rationale, there's not a strong genetic rationale. So kids with ADHD, some of them respond really well to some pharmaceutical treatments, my son included. And, you know, I can tell when he hasn't had, his, his teachers can tell when he hasn't had it, has, has the medicine or, you know, isn't quite um, on point at school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think 
we see that there are treatments out there that can can help kids manage their behavior. And, and so there will be things in the future um, once we understand enough about the biology to help treat these core symptoms of autism. And I would, as you've been going through, I think that you guys have recruited over 60,000 participants and it's, and it's a growing thing because you need that database. Yes. But I would imagine is that the understanding of, the, of how genetics are used probably sparks a lot of questions from families. It, it, what sort of questions have you run into that, it, I mean, I guarantee there's probably a lot of debunking as far as what's yeah. going on, as well as confirming. I mean, what, right. what do you see as far as parent concerns or questions or? There are so many, it's hard to know where to start with this question. But, you know, I think that there are certainly a lot of questions about privacy and those are really important. We take privacy very, very seriously. Um, you know, n the data that you give us is is given to researchers who are qualified. So that, that by qualified, that means that they are at an institution that signs our research distribution agreement. And, you know, by doing that, that means that there's a big institution that is backing this researcher um, and helping them helping the researcher abide by all of our our rules you know you can't use this data for um things other than scientific research basically you can't use it for profit you you have to use it for um scientific goals and um it's not like this data is open to the entire world for people to mine it's it is used in the scientific community appropriately but it's not open to, for the entire world to look at um, so, and, you know, I think that our, uh, we do what we can and, and ab abide by the strictest policies that, that are feasible for us to keep people's data safe. And, um, I hope that that helps people understand. Um, I think a lot of people worry that, um, we're selling their data. You know, we get a lot of that and, there is no way we're selling anything. <laughs> um, we can't even accept money. Um, so there's, we're not selling data. Um, I think well, I've seen that concern several times. Um, I think that people don't understand sometimes about the types of genetic um, changes that can lead to autism. So a lot of times we might hear that, well, there's no one else in my family with autism. How could it be genetic? Um, and so there's this concept of de novo mutations. So these are changes that happen directly in the sperm or the egg that that formed the child with autism. And so by that, you're inheriting from you're kind of inheriting from your mom or your dad in, sen in the sense that they're 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 passing on their genome to you through their germ cell. But um, it's not like the mother is is or the father is having the the genetic change and also having autism. So I think that's one one thing that people have a misunderstanding about. Um, trying to think of others, but I think safety is definitely a, a big one. Yeah, I, I mean, just hearing all of this and just knowing how a confusing getting that diagnosis, which I'm sure, yeah, I mean, you experienced mm -hmm. and that was a long time ago is okay, mm -hmm. so what does this mean for my life? And then understanding genetics is that I, one of the things that at least we've spoken to parents about, about, you know, there is value to this. It's contributing back to yes. that overall data, that yes. research that hopefully will help us get a better understanding, better advocacy, better yep. treatments. Yep. Um, 
Is is that, I mean, if you were to sum up an overarching goal for the Spark program yeah. and what's being done, I mean, is that is that really where it's going? Absolutely. And I thank you for bringing that up. Um, I do think that it is important for families to participate in research or in research basically to to make sure that their child's story and their child's journey is heard in research. Um, I think that it's really hard for parents to participate in research, and I totally, totally understand that. Um, my son has 15 hours of therapy outside of school every week. And, you know, Saturday morning, I'm driving him to PT and taking him to to all of his therapies like every Saturday without fail for the past 15 years. Um, so I, I totally get it. And um, but it is important for us to advocate for our kids and to make sure that their their journeys are heard. Um, I can think of like a recent example. So that's a good analogy, I think, that people will relate to. So this week, my son, he's like 17 now, so they're teaching him lifelong skills. So he's being taught to cook uh -huh. um, and he's being taught to exercise, uh, two of which he's like both things he's like not a fan of. So he has to cut an onion, which is he hates onions. And actually, that there's another back autism backstory to that, too. But he hates onions. He has to chop the onion, you know, and every day I hear him, the therapist, and he's really complaining and the therapist doesn't know what to do. Like, why can't he cut this onion? So I go down there and I'm like, I think if you give him one of these face shields, like the COVID face shields, he will cut this onion, you know, and sure enough, I found this face shield. He's like, he was fine, like cutting the onion. And, you know, it's just being there to advocate for him and to be able to be his translator and to say, even to this therapist who literally has been working with him every almost every day for the past three years, you know, this is what he needs. And this is why. And it's the same thing in research, like being able to be there to make sure that um, their, their story and their journey is heard. And also, you know, from a genetic standpoint, everyone on autism is different and there are more differences and there are similarities. Um, eventually we will converge and, and, and have a genetic convergence and, and biological convergence and understand autism, you know, at a higher level. But right now it, th these things are difficult and because autism is so different in everyone, it is important for everyone to be sequenced if, if we, you know, for us to sequence, as scientists to sequence as many people as possible. And so I think, you know, there's a similar analogy there, um, just being there to advocate for your kid and for them to be part of research. Um, I, and I love how you tied that back into, you know, the treatment component to it, because one of the things, and this is coming from a practitioner viewpoint, mm -hmm. that I'd be saying would be wonderful over time to have better understanding is yep. when you are looking at a child and every child is unique yeah but if if there's ways to be able to almost understand. group to understand a little yep. bit more about yep. it mm -hmm. it helps for programming yep. it helps it for prognosis yeah. it helps families yeah yeah i mean i knew that that shield was going to be what he needed because i knew he was just like reacting to the sensory of like he hates the smell he hates like he he just has an oversensory reaction to some things, not everything. Um, so I just knew that the shield was going to work. Um, but when you when you were talking about the time commitment, and and most families go through this process of you yeah. know how do I make everything work? I'm I, if I don't do this, am I going to feel guilty that I didn't or that I chose this over this? And there's yeah. so many things going on. 
if I remember correctly, is that the time commitment to participate in something like Spark is that it's been it's been minimized as far as the right. amount of effort is that you all have done things to make it easier to be right. able to do. So how do how do families, I guess, go through that process? And what does that process look like of being a contributor? Yeah, I mean, we we built this process from the ground up for it to be as easy as possible for autism families to participate. So people just have to go to the website sparkforautism.org. Um, the registration part should take maybe 15 to 30 minutes. Um, then we'll mail you a spit kit if you choose. You don't have to contribute DNA if you don't want to. Um, and then the DNA collection piece, maybe it will take half an hour, an hour um, at most. So, um, and then from there, we ask you to fill out surveys if you can. Um, we try to give something back to parents at every step of the way. Um, so there are there are definitely Amazon gift cards um, given back in return for people's time. Um, and most importantly, information. Um, so we have a bunch of questionnaires on our dashboards that we can give you an individual report so we can tell you where your kid is um, in contrast to the rest of the group. So you can see like what percentile they are compared to um, the rest of their age group in, in Spark. And so, you know, every little piece of information helps. And um, sometimes these individual reports can be helpful in IEP meetings. Um, things like that, or being being able to share them with your providers or your ABA team. Um, so we hope that for everything that you give us, we give you something in return that is useful. And I mean, just knowing more about my own child seems yeah. like a very good reason to to engage. But yeah. you're you're on. I, I I don't know how much you get the the direct feedback from families or anything like that. But I mean. Do you have any examples of a family that maybe has reached out to say, you know, I went through this process, thank you, because I did learn this, or I yeah. did take this to my yeah, doctor? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it really ranges. So we, on our YouTube channel, um, you can find many videos of families where we've given directly genetic results back. And I think it really can be life-changing for a lot of families for many different reasons. Um, so overall for Spark, for people with autism and spark, we're able to find a genetic diagnosis in about ten percent of kids. Um, if if you are um, if your child has um, intellectual disability or epilepsy, the chances are higher that we'll find something. Um, and that just is because um, people who have those types of um, symptoms ha are more likely to have a genetic genetic basis to their autism. And so, I think for many parents, um, even if the finding isn't going to change exactly how their kid is being treated at the moment, I think just knowing the reason, the answer why, um, is really profound because they no longer have to think of their kid, um, they think of it differently. I mean, there are many videos showing parents like how they think of it, and I don't want to speak for them. But I think for many people, it's a relief. It's it's a relief of um, not feeling at fault anymore or not wondering why. You know, you can, as a parent, I think any parent of any child with any medical condition, you want to know why. And um, having that answer can be very profound. And uplifting. So no. that's and absolutely. And what you were what you were describing there is just even having the answers. But you also, Pam, you mentioned epilepsy, which if 
to have advanced knowledge of that yes. and to prepare for that yes. seems like that could be life-changing for yes. certain people. It's yep. it's just knowing that, hey, you know what? I need to be prepared in advance because yep. there is a predisposition. There's a chance. Mm-hmm. So I might as well inform myself now because a seizure is a scary thing for everybody to go through. Yep. And it's good to have that background information. Yep. yep. Um, so if this if this is the process and, and families are going through it and they're getting this feedback on a regular basis, um, as you start to look through and and if you were to have a hope as far as, you know, what it, what are you expecting, like the technology? And I know this is dream world right now, so I'm yeah. not going to hold you to it. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what are we hoping to be able to see over the next few years? If, if you were to kind of draw out this, this roadmap of hopes or dreams, yeah. what could come of this? I mean, I think that the first thing that we'll see that's significant are, is we will see therapies for for relatively rare genetically based autism conditions like Angelman's or Fragile X, um, Rett syndrome. Um, these types of things have been well understood for the past 15 to 20 years, and there are cl- ongoing clinical trials um, in some of these conditions and things that are going definitely research going on in mouse models and animal models in these conditions. Um, so I think that that will be the first type of, you know, FDA-approved medical um, treatments available. I do think that at some point, once we understand the genetics of autism more fully, we'll we'll have a deeper understanding of what actually is going on in the neurons of of people with autism, in a way that we can understand the cellular behavior and the mechanisms, like what's happening and why why they're different than. Um, than people without autism. And I think that understanding of that biology will lead to treatments for the core symptoms, as I was talking about earlier. Um, I think that over time, we might be able to increase, well, we should be able to increase the percent of people that we can explain with, with genetics. So we will be able to explain, I don't mean to explain people, explain people's autism and conditions. Um, that number will increase over time. So now it's 10%, you know, maybe in the next 10 years, it will increase to 20 or 30% with the different kinds, with, you know, a deeper understanding of genetics. Um, what we do know is that genetics, the genetics of autism is really complicated. Mm-hmm. It's not one gene or 10 genes, it's a thousand genes. And so um, with that number of genes involved, it just requires a lot of research to try to understand what's happening. Um, but, you know, over t- we're definitely making headway. Since the time my son was diagnosed, I think we probably understood, had like 20 genes when he was diagnosed in 2007, and now there are probably more than 200. And so, um, you know, with that information and more research, um, that information will become just, um, it will become clearer, the yeah. biological basis of autism. And so you explain it better. I, for one, am am excited to see this research come out, to learn more as as the data is presented and as Mm -hmm. uh, Spark starts to put more and more information out there as they've looked at and analyzed that data. Because as a clinician, it's it's individualized care, but the more information you have to be able to guide you on your treatment planning, on guiding you on all the conditions that could be contributing to be able to make scientific decisions instead of purely mm-hmm. subjective decisions, yeah. it's only going to be helpful. And so as Spark starts to get this information and and as they start to publish some more of the, the research that's coming out, how do people 
get that information? Where do they go to learn more about Spark, either to, to apply to, to participate or to learn about maybe what's on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think our website is a great place to familiarize, you know, with the types of research that we're funding and and supporting um, and that is coming out of, of Spark. Um, I think our Facebook page actually also does a great job of, of keeping people up to date. Um, people can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, too. Um, but I think our website and the YouTube channel the social media channels too um, are are great sources of information for family. We really try to pack the scientific information in, but also to um, make it lay friendly so that people who aren't scientists can understand. I think that you know the more that's coming out, the more that you all are able to do, and and the more that people are engaged in your project. Um, I. I can just imagine that we're going to have such a different technology of treatment in the next 10, 15 years because of this experience. Um, Dr. Feliciana, I appreciate you coming on and talking about Spark. Is there any other specific um, tidbits of information or advice that you want to give to families or to practitioners on you know, the process or the value? Um, just some parting words. Um, I would just say that the re participating in SPARC is not just participating in the Simons Foundation Autism Research Initiative SPARC, it's participating in all of autism research if you choose to. Um, so I think that all of your efforts are amplified because of the way we openly distribute data to other researchers and then also because we will tell you about other research studies that you may want to be a part of. And we've to date, we've matched more than 20,000 families to other research projects. And so we're we've created Spark um, not just for Safari to, to look at, but also for the entire research community to 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 mine. And so um, I think that by participating in Spark, you really amplify your efforts and um, share your data, not just with us, but with the autism research community at large. Well, I'm going to encourage that same sentiment. And, and I appreciate, once again, you coming on to the podcast to share. And maybe we can get you back on in the future to talk about some of the uh, personal experience of your journey with autism with your Absolutely. own family and, and all that, because those are the stories that I, I love to go into because yeah. it's, it, it puts that personal touch onto everything. But yeah. thank you again, Dr. Feliciano. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.